Uh, would you go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation? If you're joining us today, thank you for being here. So glad you would join us. Um, I'm sorry about that ring. I think those guys are probably working on that. Um, but we've been studying this year through the book of Revelation. And yes, you heard me that correctly. We've been studying this year through the book of Revelation. We've been in it since uh, early January. And this morning's text, we find ourselves in chapter 19. So you could be turning there to tap chapter 19. And we're going to be focusing on the first 10 verses of that chapter. The past few weeks, we've been in chapters 17 and 18, where we were introduced to the great harlot woman, Babylon. We were warned by John of her seductive powers, of how she will make herself drunk, as chapter 17 said, on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. But we also saw that she will be no match for the God of Israel, as one day the mighty angel will call out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And that brings us to our text today, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, and it's finally time to start celebrating. We have spent many chapters weeping, but now it's going to be time to worship. And actually, spoiler alert, these last four chapters of Revelation, uh, we're going to get to worship a lot. We're going to see Christ cast Satan into the lake of fire. We're going to see him usher in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to get a glimpse of the new Jerusalem, the city that's purchased by the blood of the Lamb and given to his bride, the church, to inhabit for all eternity. I I cannot wait to study those chapters together after all we've been through. Um, But we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let's go ahead and stand Uh, Stand together for the reading of our text today. This is God's holy word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. 
I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. O Spirit of God who gave this prophecy, this letter to John and to the seven churches in Asia, we we want to receive this portion of this letter uh, this morning. And we, we don't want to receive that just from Eric Schmaltz's mouth, Lord. We want to receive that from your heart, Lord. And so as we, as we consider your word, as we open this word to our souls, would, would you open our souls to this word, Lord, and speak to us, Lord. Change us, correct us, encourage us, Lord. Do, do this work. Give us faith as we hear your word preached. Faith to endure, faith to trust, faith to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. Several years ago on his blog, Randy Alcorn posted a story of a young female swimmer named Florence Chadwick. He wrote this, in, in 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island determined to swim to the shore of mainland California, which I looked up, and that's about a 26-mile swim, which is not a little swim. Uh, She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather that day was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken, out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside her, told her she was close and that she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out of the waters. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a mile away. At a news conference the next day, Randy says, Uh, Florence said, all I could see was the fog. But I think if I could have just seen the shore, I would have made it. And I wonder if the saints who heard this letter for the first time might have felt a little like Florence Chadwick. Much of John's letter, especially chapters 6 through 18, which we've been studying through over the last several months, it's probably felt... It probably felt to them, it's probably felt to us, a little like swimming for 26 miles through a dark, foggy ocean. It's been emotionally exhausting to to witness scene after horrific scene of deadly plagues and fierce judgments, terrifying images of seven-headed dragons and centaur, scorpion-tailed locusts and sulfur-breathing lion horses, which, by the way... I was, I was writing that, and I just remembered this commercial. It was a Mountain Dew commercial from 2016. I don't know if any of you guys remember this, but it was the, the um, wait, I almost said it wrong, the Puppy Monkey Baby. Do you remember that commercial? Oh, it was a terrifying, I think it's just as equally as terrifying. It's a little like puppy face, monkey tail, and baby bottom. It was like a crazy looking thing. Anyway. That's the kind of images that I think of when I'm reading, when I'm reading the Revelation. Uh, but anyway, there's been nothing, uh, almost nothing but death and destruction and torment and persecution. And, and all that can be really draining on us emotionally. Like Miss Chadwick, I think those early believers and maybe some of us have been struggling to keep 
our spiritual heads above the icy prophetic waters, fighting against the freezing and relentless waves of promised judgment. Our view of the risen and promised Christ obstructed by the thick, disorienting fog of such a painful promised future. I mean, it has to feel devastating and hopeless, but haven't we noticed that God has been so kind to give us periodic relief from the impending doom? (laughs) He's graciously paused all of those destructive actions in order sometimes to clear the fog from them, even if just for a moment, to lift the heads of his people and to give them a glimpse of that heavenly shoreline. This is what Chadwick's mother tried to do for her, to give her daughter the assurance of what her own eyes could see, cheering her on with, you're you're close, you will make it. But how much more does our sovereign father stand above the stormy waters of our lives with his far superior vantage point from which to reassure his children? When all we can see is the storm around us, he sees the shore. In fact, I love the line from the song that we sing together, Christ the sure and steady anchor. Sure, S-U-R-E, and steady anchor. But this is the line in verse 4 that I love. It says, Christ the sure, and this is the S-H-O-R-E, sure. Christ the sure of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Chadwick didn't succeed in what she had set out to do that chilly morning in 1952. But just two months later, she attempted the swim a second time. And just as before, a thick fog enveloped her as she swam. But this time, she said she kept in her mind a mental picture of the shoreline. And it kept her motivated to push forward until she finally reached the shore. So I believe that our text this morning that we're going to study, I think that this was given to the Apostle John as a sort of motivating mental picture, a glimpse of that eternal shoreline, if you will, to to keep assuring the churches in Asia Minor and we believers today of God's promise to see his people all the way home. So I want to begin this morning by first going back a bit to remember what John has witnessed up to this point in this letter. We're not going to rehash everything, but just starting back in chapter 6 with the breaking of the first seal, we have seen almost nothing but utter chaos and destruction unleashed on humanity. Scene after scene, we've seen. Uh, Then we move all the way to chapter 17, which we studied just a couple of weeks ago, and John is told by an angel that he will be shown the judgment of the great prostitute. The angel proceeds to bring him before a beautiful woman arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. John's told that the image of this adulterous harlot is actually an allusion to the great city Babylon, who will seduce the nations with her immorality and riches. But just when it seems like all is hopeless and Babylon will win, Almighty God and His holy vengeance, He brings her down. In uh, chapter 18, verse 2, it says, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great.'" That's what the mighty voice of the angel cried out. And oh, what relief those saints must have felt to hear those words. I want us to, um, to, to read a little bit of, of chapter 18. Um, but as I, as I read this, we're going we're gonna to read, uh, starting in verse 22, and just read to the end of that chapter. But as I read this, I, I thought it'd be, it'd be good for us to just close our eyes. I'm going to read this. I just, just want your imagination to kick in as, as best as it can right now. Uh, at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, but just close your eyes and listen, listen to the imagery that's described here. 
um, sorry, starting in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Nothing left. Emptiness. Stillness, darkness, deadness, silence. And then, and you can open your eyes if you haven't done that already. And then the very next verse we see, or we hear, uh, we see Revelation 19.1. This is how John starts it. After this, I heard, he said. So after this fall, he hears. Notice, John doesn't see what's about to happen. He tells us that he hears it. And that's important because we, we just got finished seeing that, that all, it's almost like the whole scene of Babylon, it fades to black and there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden there's this, this piercing sound that John hears. He tells us that it, it, it's, this, um, it's this sound that, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation, oh, after, I'm sorry, I got myself confused. Oh, next verse, after this I heard, notice how John doesn't see. All right, so after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That's, that's verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. John tells us that the silence that was preceding the fall of Babylon, it's shattered by the deafening chorus of heavenly voices. And actually, these voices, this isn't the first time we've heard from this heavenly choir. If you remember, we were introduced to them back in chapter 7. And if you want to turn there with me, uh, go back to cha Revelation chapter 7. Keep your finger at 19 because we're going to be right back at that. Um, but verse 9 of chapter 7, John told us this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, so there's that same great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out, sounds kind of familiar, crying out with a loud voice. And what are they saying? What's the song that they're singing? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Go back to chapter 19, and what do we find? The same choir singing the same glorious song, except this time they begin with a different kind of exclamation. This time they say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now that word hallelujah, that's a word that's transli transliterated from Hebrew. I, don't, I didn't know what transliterated means as I was studying through this thing, but I, I found out transliterated means well, actually, we have a lot of words that are transliterated into our English language. Words from the French language, like croissant 
and rendezvous <laughs> and, and words from German like kindergarten and delicatessen. These are all transliterated words. They're words that are from the original language that we've just adopted into our own language. We haven't translated them into a word in English. And so that's what hallelujah is. It's actually the combination of two Hebrew words. The words hallelujah, which means praise, and the word yah, which is short for Yahweh. Or the Lord, the name for the Lord. So hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. And this is a word that isn't found anywhere else in the entire New Testament. There's a few places that it is in the Psalms. uh, But in the entire New Testament, it's only here in this chapter. And it's here four times. And I think that's intentional. Maybe I can get, do we have any kids left in here? If you're a kid, can you raise your hand? Well, I mean, I guess lots of us are kids. All of us probably are kids. (laughs) Uh, But I mean like young kids. Yeah, I see a few young kids. All right, maybe I can get you guys to help me. So um, I have a question for you. If if we just had 4th of July a couple weeks ago, if you are at a 4th of July fireworks show, how do you know if the fireworks show is about to end? Who can answer that? How do you know? Anybody? Just shout it out. What? Yeah, so how do you know that it's the finale? How do you know that? What happens? What's different than the rest of the show? Noise, okay, yeah, noise. What else? The flag? Somebody say the flag? Yeah, what? Yes, the biggest, good. So the noise, the biggest. What happens at the end of a fireworks show when it's about to be done? So many more fireworks go off, don't they? And I think that's very similar to what's going on here. You know you're getting to the end of the show because all the biggest and the loudest fireworks, they're saved till the end. And, and we're seeing that here. The, the, the exclamation point, all of redemptive history has been leading up to this climactic final moment and this heavenly multitude, they know there's not a more appropriate moment to let out our loudest and highest praise. So they, they do it. They let John and all the rest of creation hear it. And they say, Hallelujah. They say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's like a, for the finale of a fireworks show. And why, why are they chosen to sing these words, salvation and glory and power belong to our God? Well, again, remember back in chapter 6, after the opening of the fifth seal, we heard another set of voices crying out. But they weren't crying out in praise back then, they were crying out for deliverance. John tells us in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 6 that these were the voices of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And these voices, they cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, listen to what they say, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That phrase, how long, O Lord? It's been the cry of God's people from just about the very beginning. Abraham wondered how long it would be before God fulfilled his promise to give him a son. Noah wondered how long it would be before God sent rain to judge the earth's wickedness. Moses and the Israelites wondered how long they'd have to wander around in the desert before they'd reach the promised land. King David cried out in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The prophet Habakkuk proclaimed something similar. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? 
Paul even tells us in Romans that creation itself has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, he says. How long, O Lord, God's people cry. Do you feel that longing in your own soul? The corruption of everything? The brokenness, the way nothing seems to ever work the way it should? The evil in the world? The pull of temptation in your own flesh? The disorder, the distortion, the grind? Nothing without resistance or or friction? Everything is a measure of pain and suffering and difficulty and sadness and fear and worry and anxiety and loneliness. Don't you feel that? Do you? No wonder God's people have cried out, how long, O Lord? But like the finale of that fireworks show, Revelation 19 brings with it the end of us having to ask that age-old question. And this great multitude explodes in exuberant praise. How long, O Lord? Yahweh says, no longer. Revelation 19:2, and this is why, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. He has heard every single longing cry of his persecuted people. He has kept every single drop of their tears. He has remembered every single infraction done to one of his own. Every single one of his precious people who have ever been mistreated, abused, slandered, trafficked, enslaved, oppressed, forgotten, wronged, harmed, abandoned, martyred, or betrayed, or all kinds of other ways that his people have been wronged. He's seen them. He knows. He has not forgotten And he will come to exact his revenge. Sure, Babylon will manage to lure away the nations with her own tantalizing promises of fake salvation and fake glory and fake power. But we must take courage as we listen to the great multitude's song. Hallelujah, they say. Salvation and glory and power don't belong to the harlot. They belong to our God. And he will judge her with his vengeance and his judgments, we hear them say, are both true and just. Let's think about that for a second. Why are they true? His judgments are true because they're right. They're valid. They're accurate. They're pure and genuine. His judgments can be perfectly trusted. And why are they just? They're just because they're fair and accurate. They're not excessive. His judgments are to be handed down and handed down precisely, appropriately, correctly, and fully on all those who well deserve them. And and this, John shows us, is precisely what will happen. Look in verse 3. Once more they cry out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Who is that her? That her, that's a reference again to the great city of Babylon. What had once been a wealthy, powerful, formidable nation is now depicted as this smoldering heap of ash and rubble laid waste by the judgment of the Lord God of Israel, her smoke forever billowing up into eternity. And what that means for us is that her destruction will be final, over, done, finished, irreversible. 
So the multitude cries out, hallelujah, there goes Babylon. <laughs> and then the scene, the scene shifts, and it's as if John's eyes, I know I told you guys to open your eyes up earlier, but it's like, almost like John's eyes are suddenly opened. He's now not only able to hear, but he actually can see the scene that's, been, that's taking place in front of him. And so what he sees is, in addition to this mass choir made up of all those who have been redeemed, he now sees 20, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And what does he see them doing? They're falling down on their faces in response to the truths that they've heard, this choir of the redeemed proclaiming. And, you know, we, we've seen the uh, 24 elders and the four living creatures. They're used to this kind of falling down on their face thing. Uh, as you might remember, you know, the, the 24 elders, they represent God's ransomed and redeemed church. They're clothed in white, they're seated on thrones, they're wearing golden crowns on their heads. And every time we've seen them in this letter, they, they, along with the four living creatures, have been actively and continuously engaged in the worship of God around the throne. That's kind of like their thing, that's what they do. I don't know about any of you other elders in the room, uh, but I know I'm, I'm 39, and I know it's not as easy as it used to be to get myself up and off the floor when I get down onto it. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty impressed with these guys. They, they're doing it all the time. Uh, and here they are again, falling down and worshiping God. And they're saying, amen, or, or it, it is so. And, and then they offer their own personal hallelujah. And then we get to verse 5, and John says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. So, so note, notice right there the comprehensive and all-encompassing nature of this call to worship. You know, we do a call to worship every time we start our services. But this is, this is a call to worship, and, and he's calling people to come and to praise our God. And look at who it's directed at. It isn't just directed at the specialists. It's not just the, the singers that he's calling to worship or the musicians, those touchy-feely, artsy-type Christians. No, this summons, he, he's, calling, uh, he's calling all the redeemed to come and to praise God. He says, praise our God, all you his servants. That literally means everyone who is his servant, everyone who he has purchased, everyone who belongs to him, who have given him their loyalty, all who have pledged him their allegiance. He says, praise our God, all you his servants. And then he says, praise our God, all you who fear him. This isn't the kind of, of like run away and hide fear that you might face, uh, might feel in the face of a predator. It's a fear that, as Charles Spurgeon says, leans towards the Lord because of his very goodness. It's that kind of fear. And he says, praise our God, all you who fear him. Then he says, praise our God, all his creatures from the smallest to the greatest. Not a single one of them are left out. All are commanded to join in the praise of God. All who have received his grace. All who have had their sins mercifully forgiven. All are invited and encouraged to sing a song of praise. Let's just stop there for a second. That's instructive to us. So we're, we're seeing an image of a scene in the future where we will praise the Lord together and we will be joined in a group of all these kinds of people and we won't be singled out for our, skill, our vocal skill or our lack of vocal skill. We'll be called on by the Lord to praise Him. And what we get to do every time that we show up here at church on a Sunday morning and, and whoever's leading us in singing like Stephen did this morning will call us to worship. We get to practice for this moment. So we get to remember that we are the ones who have been redeemed. We have been called by these 
these saints who are in the future, who are calling out to us from the future saying, you're going to come and you're going to get to shoot off fireworks. You're going to get to say hallelujah. So I just wonder, what about you? How do you approach that moment when we gather on Sunday mornings? When, when you hear the call to worship, do you listen? Do you, do you listen for your name to be called? Do you, as Alan preached uh, a few weeks ago, do you have a song to sing when we gather here? You do. If you're redeemed of the Lord, you do have a song. And maybe, maybe it's not a song that comes out in tune, uh, but it's a song that the Lord has given to you and to you uniquely. And to you universally, all of us, we have the same song that we sing. And God wants us to sing and to take full advantage of the time that we get to spend together on Sunday mornings, practicing and rehearsing this praising of the Lord. And as we move into the second half of our text, we can hear the intensity of this praise growing. This heavenly choir, it it lifts up what it seems to be an even louder declaration of praise than we've even seen already. Uh, Look in verse 6. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Okay, well, that sounds similar to verse 1. But then he says, like, it's like he, he's, he's like searching for stuff. He's fishing for stuff. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. I mean, yeah, John, he begins that verse much like the way he began verse 1, except this time it's like loud, just it's not going to cut it. So he reaches for a couple of word pictures. He, he grabs uh, roaring waters and he grabs peals of thunder. Th- those are loud. I know those things are really loud. And now, I haven't actually visited Niagara Falls. Maybe some of you guys here have done that. Uh, but I've seen videos of the insane amounts of water that are raging over the sides of that cliff, crashing down on the rocks below. Um, it's been reported, I read, that, that people have been able to hear the sound of the waters of Niagara Falls up to 25 miles away. I mean, that's some serious volume that that thing is producing. I bet most of us have also uh, probably heard the peal of a bolt of lightning that was much too close for comfort. Do you have like a memory of that in your head right now? Um, I can remember one night as a little kid standing right inside our front doorway of our house with the door open uh, and there was a thunderstorm going. We were watching the the rain and I think it was kind of flooding that night. Um, But my parents just seconds... Uh, seconds before what I'm about to tell you happened, my parents had told me to close the door. It's time to come inside. So I'd done that. I turned around, and this bolt of lightning struck the tree, the big oak tree in the front of our yard. And there was this, I remember there was this extremely bright flash of light that I don't remember seeing because my eyes were closed, but I remember my eyelids like like pulsing red because of this big old flash of light and followed by a sound that felt like it might blast the bones out of my body. It was this incredibly thunderous sound, and I, I don't think I've ever been that close to a bolt of lightning before. Um, and so that, that's the kinds of things that John has in his mind when he's reaching for a way to describe the decibel level of this heavenly choir. The best sounds he thinks of are roaring water and thunder, and this, it's got to be because it's such a huge choir, and these people, they're not holding anything back. They're crying out, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. George Frederick Handel, I don't know if I pronounced that right, uh, used this verse, this uh, 19, chapter 19, verse 6, he used this as the basis for his masterpiece, the Hallelujah Chorus. And if you've ever gotten a chance to see a live choral performance of that piece, you know just how powerful of a piece of music that is. 
It's got to be the closest thing we'll ever hear on earth to what this future heavenly choir might have sounded like. But just, I was just thinking, like, could you imagine if you showed up at a concert to hear that song performed and, um, and all they did was whisper the lyrics? I mean, that, it just wouldn't make any sense, would it? <laughs> Hallelujah. Ha, for the Lord God omnipotent reign. Like, that just wouldn't make any sense. Words like that, they, they can't be whispered. Like my, my friend Peter Davidson always says in his thick New Orleans accent, dim shouting words, darling. That's what he says. Dim shouting words. When we gather together each Sunday with the saints of God to proclaim the glories of God and his justice and his salvation and his power and his reign, we can't look about as interested as someone standing in line at the post office. John is giving us a glimpse of this heavenly worship service, and we need to follow their lead. Every week when we come together, we need to sing with exuberance and joy. Yes, you need to sing, but yes, you need to do it with joy. You get to do it with joy. We, we got a chance, an opportunity this morning to do it. Stephen led us in rejoice. Come and lift your hands and raise your voice. We all sang that together. We sang that to one another. Were you listening? He is worthy of all praise. That's what we sang together. What did you do during that song? Did you feel praise welling up inside of you? Did you shout? Did you tap your little titties on the floor? That's what you should have been doing. Because he's worthy of our praise. Oh, there's another song that we sing by City Light. It says this. Sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love, it's a strong and mighty fortress. So raise your voice now, it says. Our God is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Them shouting words. <laughs> Darling. <laughs> this heavenly choir, it's helping John and those early believers to peer through the fog to see the celebration that awaits them on the other shore. God the Almighty reigns. Not Babylon or Assyria or Rome or Persia or Germany or Russia or America or any other poser kingdom throughout history. Babylon will fall. And all his people will lift a shout of praise to Yahweh. And when that happens, when all those kingdoms finally fall, guess what happens? <laughs> the coming of that new heavenly Jerusalem will be right on its heels. And that means that there's going to be a wedding. So the choir keeps the celebration going. So let's look in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what we see here, John, John's seeing a new image. So far it's all been about God's judgment and praising him for that, but now John sees an image of a bride and this bride is prepared to be married. And this image of the bride, it's an intentional direct contrast to the image of the harlot that we saw in the preceding chapters. While earlier John had witnessed Babylon as a seductive prostitute adorned in purple and scarlet and flashy gold jewelry, now John's shown an image of a bride clothed simply and purely in bright fine linen. She represents the ransom church of Christ. It's a metaphor that's used all over Scripture. 
Paul speaks of it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the bride that Christ is coming from. That's the the bride that the lamb purchased with his own blood, that he's cleansed for himself. But look again at what we read in our text. We seem to be told here that the bride has made herself ready, that she has clothed herself in this fine linen. Do you see that? Look at at verse, uh, the middle of verse, I'm sorry, uh, verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself, uh, right before that, verse 7, and his bride has made herself ready. Is is this a contradiction to Paul's teaching? Remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew 25. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew 25. listen to this parable Jesus told. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Then the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for for our lamps are going to go out, or going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and, and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Chilling words. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We don't know when the bridegroom's going to come, so so we must be ready. And, And there's a real sense in which it is our responsibility to make ourselves ready for his return to clothe ourselves in these fine linens which are righteous deeds and not to be clothed but with unrighteous ones. But pay attention to the wording at the beginning of verse 8. It's very intentional. John says, it was granted her to clothe herself. And this is yet another place where we see God's divine sovereignty set up against our human responsibility. We must do the hard work, yes, of saying no to temptation and saying yes to Christ. We must do the hard work of clothing ourselves and making ourselves ready and remaining ready until the bridegroom returns. Like Florence Chadwick, the swimmer, we got to keep putting one arm into the water, one after another, always pressing forward toward the shore. But we must never think, never uh, operate under the assumption that the power we have for this work resides within ourselves. I think Paul says it best in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation. Get to the shoreline, he says. 
But then he, he clarifies, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what that teaches us and what I think this passage is, is reminding us is another glimpse of this, is that God supplies the will and he strengthens us for the work. We will use the will and the strength that he supplies to make ourselves ready for his return, yes, but it's his will and it's his strength that we work from, and it's all for his good pleasure, the good pleasure of the bridegroom. Such a a glorious uh, truth that that is, and and it's so hard for us as Christians to not get that wrong. We think that, that it's our strength that needs to get us to the shoreline. It's such a subtle thing. We do it in our parenting. We do it in our relationships with one another. We do it in, in the way that we relate to God. We think that, that it's our effort or our resolve that's going to make God lean toward us. But th- that's why we need this. We need to remember God grants us righteousness. It's granted us to be clothed with this. There's one final scene that we see in verse 9 and 10, and it's this exchange between John and the angel. Let's read that together. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I, I love this scene so much. Because <laughs> uh, like all of a sudden we're, we're kind of snapped out of that whole transcendent choir performance. Um, and and I, don't, I don't know, maybe you know, I don't know where this angel suddenly comes from. But all of a sudden there's this angel standing next to him. He's, he's there, he's next to John. And I just have to imagine John, um, like what his face must have looked like in that moment. You know, he's, he's been imagining, seeing this vision. He's probably just like, like that. And then all of a sudden this angel's here. He's like, hey, hey man, hey. Um, you might want to write this down. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to be writing this stuff down. Uh, so I just love that. Um, and then the angel, he, give, he gives, this is what he tells him to write down. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's one of seven uh, theologians call them beatitudes of revelation. We've seen a few of those already. We've got a few more coming. This is the middle one. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, well why? Why will they be blessed? What is so great about this marriage of the Lamb? I just couldn't say it better than I found this guy named James, James Hamilton uh, in his commentary on Revelation. So I've, I've got this on the back of your, your notes. But I, I just want us to, to read and meditate together, worshipfully meditate uh, on James' words here. So let's listen to this. We can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Amen? Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. Never has a father more wealthy planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride to be more appropriately. 
Never has a more powerful pledge like an engagement ring been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to his bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Never has a bridegroom done more to qualify his beloved to be his bride. Never has a bride needed her bridegroom more. Never has there been a wedding more significant than this one. Never has a prince with more authority taken a bride with less standing. Never has a bride had her prince die for her, rise from the dead for her, and give to her his own standing before the father. Never has a bridegroom loved his bride more. Never has a bride waited as long for her bridegroom. Never has a bride sung more songs to her beloved. Never has there been a wedding with more guests than this one will have. Never has a wedding taken place on a more momentous occasion. The end of the overlapping ages and the ushering in of the kingdom. Never has there been a marriage like this one. The angel reassures John that he hasn't just been imagining these sights and sounds of his last vision. The angel tells him these these are the true words of God. I, had, I could kind of envision the angel saying, like, like, just in case you're second-guessing yourself, you actually saw that. Uh, and then, poor John, I, I think this guy is just so overstimulated with, you know, the harlot and the burning city and all the smoke and the four living creatures and all the, the shouting and the roaring and the thundering. He's probably just spent, poor guy. I, he, he doesn't seem to, to know how else in the world he's supposed to respond. So he just falls flat on his face at the angel's feet. And worships him. And obviously, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to worship an angel. John knows that. And then the angel's like, hey, hey man, stop. Don't do that. You're going to get us both in trouble. <laughs> would, you, would you just, like, stop? Like, you're not supposed to worship me. Like, worship God. That's what we're here for. Remember all the Yahwehs and all that stuff? Like, and, and if it were me, I think I would have just saved myself the embarrassment. I think, I, I, I just... I, John, he's the one that's writing this letter. Like, the pen is in his hand. He doesn't have to say, and I fell down at the feet of the angel and worshipped him. And he had to correct me. Like, he doesn't need to do that. Why does he do that? There's a point. This is God's word. Everything has a point. I think in humility, John leaves that there intentionally to underscore everything he's been learning and everything he wants his readers to learn as well. Worship God. John Piper says this, that's what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all of God's judgments, all God's dealings with the world, all God's plans for history from beginning to end. They have this one goal, worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. And don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. And that is exactly what John means when he closes with this obscure phrase at the end of verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Like, what in the world does that mean? Couldn't you just like tell it to us plainly, John? But if you think about it for a second, what this means, all, all the prophetic writings... All the prophets who have spoken the words of God to his people throughout history. All the promises that have been foretold. John reminds us what they've all been for. He says the spirit of prophecy. Its very point and purpose 
is to testify to Jesus. Worship God, he says. So, in conclusion, what do we do with this passage? <laughs> how should we respond? How, how should it make a difference in our lives this coming week or, or maybe just in the next couple of moments? What is it inviting us to do? I think there's just two quick takeaways. First takeaway, be ready. We saw that in the text, didn't we? Be ready. Make yourself ready. And I think what that means is wake up. Take this life seriously. Stop lusting after Babylon and her riches and power and pleasures. The bridegroom, he's coming. And you don't want to be left without oil in your lamp. So, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. Stop messing around. And, and you know, I'm, I'm speaking mostly to the believers there, but I, I'm also speaking to unbelievers. If you're here and you, you do not profess faith in Christ, you have not submitted your life to Christ, you remember that beatitude we heard? Blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You've been sent an invitation. Have you checked your mailbox? There's, there's a little note at the bottom of that invite. It says, RSVP, repent and believe. So if you're an unbeliever, that's your call. That's, that's the response that God calls you to. Repent, believe in him, be ready. And, and believers, let's stop trusting in our own power. But let's keep fighting, keep working, keep saying no to sin, keep saying yes to righteousness. And then I think the second thing that we can do in response to this is the way we ended the sermon. Worship God. All throughout this, these 10 verses, the worship of God has been taking place. And so how can we respond to worship God? Well, in a moment, the worship team is going to come up and we're going to have an opportunity again to sing together. And you remember all the stuff that we talked about in the message. There's opportunity for us to actually open our mouth and sing. There's opportunity for us to rejoice. We can lift our voice. We can raise our hands. We can move our feet. We can shout and dance and smile. And not because we're trying to put on all those things. We can do all that because we are worshiping a God who is worthy of unhindered praise. So that's a way that we can respond right now in just a couple seconds. And guys, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Um, but more than that, our life is not supposed to just be about singing kumbaya to the Lord. I don't even know what that means, kumbaya. We're not, we're not supposed to be trying to, to stay engaged in this, um, this, this worship uh, trance all of our life. That's, that's not the point. Yes, there are moments where we get to celebrate and rejoice together, but then, then the band's going to stop playing and it's going to be time to go home and the doors are going to open and we're going to find our keys and we're going Go to our car, and worship doesn't stop at that point. It just gets a little redirected. We're not directing our worship in song as one unifying voice. Now we're directing our worship through our hands and through our mouths and through our thoughts and through our actions and through the words that we say to one another. So when, when I'm saying worship God, you've got all of this week, all the rest of your life to be applying this instruction, this command, this encouragement. Worship God. And, and just to close, our, our king, he's coming. He's coming to claim his bride, his church. He will make sure that she, that we, that we arrive at that heavenly shoreline. And so, Lord, we ask, grant to us your power and your strength that we might ready ourselves for the day 
that we join that great multitude and we add our voices to their song and we cry out together. Maybe we could say it together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Lord, receive our praise. So we, we are grateful for this word. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us to worship you, we pray. Amen.